Hey, we're going we're gonna to continue, uh, but before we continue, uh, it, it would be just um, dumb of me uh, not to take this opportunity right now to just ask us to, to pray. Now, before we do that, I know that many of you here, you go to Redemption or you go to some other church, and I know that there's a handful of you are here because of an article that was written um, about my particular experience with Martha King Day that came out a few weeks ago, and appreciate you guys coming to been out tonight, and I know that not all of you are Christian. However, we are, <laughs> we are a church, and we do believe in the name of Christ, and we believe that it's under his name and under that banner that we, we all come together from different ethnicities and cultures and, and whatnot and preferences. So we're going to pray to that God whose name is Jesus right now and ask him to continue to bless our time um, and thank the food that you guys, you guys already finished. So... <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for just the gifts you give us. God, I thank you, Lord, for the gift of music and the talent that, that you gave Warren and his crew tonight, Lord, just to be able to, to bless us, Lord, with that. We thank you for Joe's barbecue and the talent of barbecue <laughs> to be able to bless our food. Um, God, I, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would just take our experiences, Lord, the men that would be on stage, myself included, and that we would we would offer it up to you and leave it at your altar. God, that you would bless our congregation and bless the men and women who are here to be able to learn and understand that the black experience, Lord, is not monolithic. And, Lord, neither is any other experience for that matter. And so, God, would you, would you bless us? In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes to this title, Living on the Hyphen, this is not something that originated with me. In fact, there are plenty of people who have talked about this. Um, I first heard it um, by a man by the name of Robert Gelinas. Some of you guys have heard Robert preach before. He, he uh, preached here when we did a deal on adoption uh, several weeks ago. But Robert was talking one day, and he said, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm African and American. I'm African American, but I live somewhere on the hyphen. And I remember just as he said that, I thought, gosh, I think I, think I resonate that as well. And it made sense to me, which may not make sense to everybody else. And so let me just explain what that means. Um, just a couple of stories of how I get here. Um, and what I want to do just in this time for about 10 minutes is just lay down my experience, maybe give you some, some background, um, and then a little bit of theology, and then I'm going to bring the guys up, and you guys are going to get a chance to hear from, from them. So here's my experience just from growing up. Some of you guys have heard this. We were born in, I was born in Mississippi in the south, moved to Los Angeles in the inner city, and then by the time we moved to Laverne, which is the suburb I moved up to, I moved to, I never had met anyone who was not black, who was not black-skinned, who was not African-American. I hadn't met anybody who was Latina. I'd never, never met anyone who was white. And we moved to Laverne, and it was predominantly white with everything else. I've shared this with you before. The men who stood next to me in my wedding was my best friend Ryan, who was White Ryan. We called him White Ryan because he... <laughs> right? And then my buddy Tinku, who was Hindu, Brandon, who was Indonesian, Josh, who was Mexican, and then my buddy David, who was Nigerian. And that was just my, that was just my upbringing. That's just what I knew. Um, I had an encounter with racism encounters, plural, with racism many of times, but I, was, I had a mom who understood the gospel and told me very, very quick that the blood of Jesus, though red, was shed for every single person of every single color and every single race. Now, though I didn't trust in that gospel yet, that, that shaped me. But that wasn't the only thing that shaped me. Because when you grow up um, in African-American culture, if you grow up in black culture, if you grow up in America, there are other things in your family that are shaping you. And so for me, the things that were shaping me primarily was the music that I was listening to. And I, I definitely grew up listening to hip-hop. Um, and that, that was basically it. Gospel music, which you guys heard earlier, which, by the way, that took me back. Let me pause for a second here. Black people don't just go to church. 
we have church. And um, we just had some church for a little bit. <laughs> and then Jim and Benjamin got up and we went right back. <laughs> uh, I could get away with anything tonight. <laughs> So that, that was, those, those things shaped me, raised in a church, uh, hip-hop culture, and those things just kind of went together. But because I still grew up in an all-black church in an inner-city context, but then was growing up at the same time uh, in, a, in a predominantly white place with multicultural cultures, and when I got to college, I found myself in that same tension. And so we'd have guys on the football team, white guys who would never talk to black guys, and black guys who would never talk to white guys, and I would be in that hyphen. And so it goes something like this. A black guy would come to me and say, hey, can you, can you tell me how to relate to so-and-so? Or perfect example, story. My buddy OJ came to me. He goes, man, Rick, I want, I, want you, I want to talk to some of these white girls, man. Like, how do I talk to some of these white girls? And I was like, talk to him like you talk to a sister. And he goes, cool. So we're at a club. This is pre-Jesus. <laughs> so we're at this club, and he sees this white lady. And he goes to this white girl, and he says, hey, what's up, girl? You look kind of thick, right? Now... That would have not necessarily been an insult for majority of the black women that I know in my family. They'd have been like, wow, you want to buy me a drink, right? <laughs> the white women I know, <laughs> they don't like that at all, right? <laughs> and so I tried to snatch him up, but as soon as he came out of his mouth, I was like, no, that's not what I meant, right? <laughs> and so we had, we, had to coach, we had to coach him up, right? <laughs> On the flip side, you had, you had, you had white guys who were trying to understand the black culture. So there was a particular guy on the team that hung out with only the white guys. And this, this guy came from a wealthy family, was incredibly rich, and he was, he was, like I said, he was an African-American guy. And then the white guys would say, you know, what, Lauren's really not black. So help us understand how to deal with the other black guys, because he's really not black. And I said, what the heck do you mean? But I didn't say, I didn't, I didn't end with the C. I said, what, what, what the heck did you, what do you mean he's not black? And like, well, you know, he's not like the rest of you guys. And it was very clear. I said, well, what do you mean? And from that, well, you know, he's articulate, he's this, he's that, he's that, he's this. I'm saying, okay, so when did black, um, or excuse me, when did white become synonymous with educated? And it just began to hit me. I'm a sophomore in college going, there are, there are perceptions upon black people that are just not true. Just in the same way that there's perception of any culture, any race, that are just not true. Because of their experience, they said, Lauren is more like us, therefore, he's one of us. Let's disregard his color, disregard his heritage, disregard his complete story, and disregard any black person who basically can read and write and think and vote and argue and things that we've never seen before because we haven't seen those particular things in culture. And that deeply bothered me. It bothered me. And, and then from there, I was constantly that. And the biggest thing I had a hard time with was that I felt like God, even though I wasn't a Christian yet, had given me an incredible ability to just be comfortable no matter what circles I was in, whether it was all black, whether it was all white, it, it, was, it, was, it was all right. I didn't plan that, but that, <laughs> I'm in it. Now, now from there, from there um, I began to look more into kind of just our culture. And so in light of black history, which we've been celebrating for about 90 years now in our, in our country, and what we don't understand sometimes is, is just the significant influence that many African Americans in our country have had on our country. Now, I can't go through all of these names, but there's, there's plenty of people that we can talk about. But one of the things that I think is significant, though shaping, is the hip-hop culture. Now, before I get to the hip-hop culture, I want to give you the background on just music in general. Outside of gospel music was born in the South through slaves. 
And, and a lot of the theology that the slaves had was very otherworldly because that's what they needed. They needed to know for 400 and something years, we have been in captivity. Does the gospel speak to that? Well, I, I read, like you read, that there was another group of people that were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They were God's people, and he redeemed them. And so that, that, that became the theology of African Americans, and especially in the South. And what was born out of that was gospel music. Well, about 1918 and so forth from there, many people begin to migrate to what was known as the North and New York and places like that. They get free space to learn freedom, to really find out what is our identity outside of slavery. And, and from there, they begin to do things. They begin to write they begin to write plays and poems and music. And out of that was probably one of the best things that happened in our culture, which was the Harlem Renaissance. Out of the Harlem Renaissance came the blues, came jazz. I was talking to a friend of mine who told me Bob Dylan started the blues. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Bob Dylan's great, but don't, 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 there's, don't try to take that, right? <laughs> don't try to take that. And so you have all these cultural experience. Now, history lesson. What you had in most African-American communities was achievers and non-achievers. And blacks all lived together in, in particular communities. And here's why. Um, there was a thing called redlining. And what redlining was is that if someone from a particular neighborhood, they would draw a red line around that neighborhood, and essentially banks would say, we're not going to give loans to people in this neighborhood to move to these other neighborhoods. It was, it was basically for money and expressed itself in race. Because people knew when darker-skinned people moved into their neighborhood, the property value of their homes would go down. This process continued all the way to about 1965. Now, what you had in black communities from the East Coast to the West Coast is that you had achievers and non-achievers. And here's what I mean by achievers and non-achievers. Achievers, achievers are, were those who, who, who lived off of certain values. Like, rent's due, we're going to pay it before it's due. Um, we're we're going to let our yeses be yeses and our noes be noes. Not necessarily religious, just certain values. Non-achievers may say, we're going to wait till the lights get cut off, and then we may try to pay. Not saying worse, better, just different types of people. However, the achievers had the voice. And so what it used to meant to be black was to be an overachiever because you had to be twice as good as a Caucasian person to get a job. And during that time, that's when we had historical black colleges getting started. That, that, that's when what it meant to be black meant to be professional. Meant to be educated, all the things now that many people see and go, oh, he's articulate. Wow, that's amazing, Ricardo. How did you become so articulate? But listen, I'm not a monkey, right? Um, I went to college. Um, when people say that, and people, just hear me, when usually when white people say that someone's articulate, that's black, um, they usually don't say that about a white person. And here's why. Not because I think they're racist. It's perception. You didn't expect it, because you've been told something else. You, you've been taught something else. And, and, and a lot of that came from this particular deal. So when redlining gets done, many people that have the opportunity to move to different places out of what was known as the hood or the ghetto, they did, because they had the resources. When they realized that redlining was a systemic issue, that they got rid of it, you can even see uh, the Arizona Republic in 2006 showed where black people lived then and where they live now. Before, the majority, 90% plus, lived in South Phoenix. And after redlining from 65 all the way to 85, you start seeing black people move to Scottsdale, and it showed from Scottsdale to Chandler to Gilbert and all these different places. And this happened in all major cities, not just in Phoenix. But there was something else that happened. Once the achievers, for the most part, left, the non-achievers had the voice. 
And they were left there, and they had the power, and they had the voice. So about 1985, when all of that ends, that's when you first start having people begin to write about gang violence and issues and how they hated the police. And for the first time, what hit the scene was gangster rap music. And gangster rap music came out of the inner city, and they were speaking into a reality. And the crazy part about it is white people in the suburbs ate it up because it spoke to the dysfunctionality in their community as well. And then from then, the dominant narrative for majority of African Americans were no longer dictated by the men and women who built our, our country and our cultural presence as, as African Americans, but it was built upon rappers and entertainers. And it's still been that way. For two years, I served in an inner city ministry here in Phoenix, and we'd ask the kids every year, who are the heroes in your community? Every single time, number one were rappers. And I'm not trying to throw out hip-hop or anything, but it shaped us. And many of you who are white, you think you could shape you too. Um, culturally, we didn't have a lot of figures in the media. Like, if you looked at the top five black families, um, you'd probably start off with Fresh Prince. You're like, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and you know the whole story. You heard a story that goes, you know, he moved out of the hood. You know, his mom said, you're up to no good. You know, you know the song, right? <laughs> he had to go all the way to Bel Air to make it. Or Family Matters. We don't really like the Winslows. We like Urkel, right? That's who we like. At best, we, we, we may um, have a few of the, uh, the Cosbys, right? The Hustables, like that's it. I, personally, and you're going to hear different from Eugene and different people, I had never met the Hustables. They didn't exist to me. I didn't know anyone who was a doctor and a lawyer and they were married and, and they lived in Brooklyn and, and Brownstones and everything was great and their families. Like, who are they? But man, we love them. But you guys probably don't remember hanging Mr. Cooper. You probably don't remember Moesha and some of the other families that, that eight of us Remember, <laughs> but th those were kind of the cultural figures. And so with that, you have now some years, 40, 50 years, and when it comes to the topic we have today is we, we, we haven't really gone as far as people would say as we have, is what I'm saying. And if you look at stats, out of the millions that are incarcerated, 44% are African-Americans. This is a stat for you. 12%. That's the amount of the population in the U.S. that the black people make up. 12%. 44% of the people that are in prison are African-Americans. Um, when you look at jobs like doctors, 3.5% of lawyers are African-American. 3% of doctors are African-Americans. 1% of architects are African-Americans. And majority of them are women. They're not males. Um, that just by, my, just by being born as an African-American, you have one in 21 chance that you can expect to be murdered by the age of 40, before the age of 40. Now. Not, not lynchings. And, and, and even more of a topic that, as a church, we really don't talk about a ton, um, but abortion. You should look at the proportions of how many African-American babies are aborted compared to any other race. And so we talk about black-on-black -black crime in the streets. Some of these kids don't even get a chance to live, to even have the opportunity, to even boost up whatever stats that I can give you. And so for the purpose of today is not at all to alienate African-American women. They, they, they are our mothers, our sisters, our family, and are equally as influential as the African-American men. However, for the sake of our conversation tonight, I wanted to hear from and have you hear from um, five unique, different African-Americans for the sole purpose so that you can experience that the African-American experience is not monolithic, meaning it's not the same. 
There's no such thing as they all. You can say Ricardo, you can say Rico, you can say Eugene, you can say DC, and you can say Prince. Um, you can say Wayne, the, the, that particular person, but not they all. And so without further ado, ado um, what we're going to do is I'm going to throw out some questions in him, and then later we're going to have some time for you guys to text in some questions, uh, but we're going to have a lot of fun. So if you guys want to make your way uh, towards, the, towards the stage, we're going we're gonna to have some fun tonight. If you guys yeah. I get to kind of be like Tavis Smiley in this, in this moment right now. <laughs> okay, there you go. Wayne, you guys can take that. You can just pass that mic around over here. All right, so let me, let me kind of introduce the panel that we have, we have here for us uh, tonight. Uh, to my left here, this is, you know what, I'm going to probably give you guys' way. So on my left here is Rico. Uh, Rico goes here to Redemption Tempe, and he hails from the Midwest in Peoria, Illinois, um, a graphic designer. And then we also have here next to him is Eugene. Eugene is at the Arcadia Congregation, and he's a writer for the Arizona Republic, uh, originally from D.C. I'll represent black D.C. Um, <laughs> this is Prince. Prince is from here. He's from the west side. He's from Glendale. Um, and currently right now he's uh, playing in the NFL. Wayne right here. Wayne is originally from New York, Jamaican New York. And uh, you guys get a chance to hear an interesting story from Wayne. Uh, he's at Re Redemption Alhambra Village, which is our newest congregation. And then lastly, you have D.C. Some of you guys have met D.C. He's a very intimidating African-American male that reads scripture at the 1045. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, this is the Lord. And you're like, yes. <laughs> the presence is felt. Uh, D.C. is from St. St. Louis, and, uh, and so anyways, you're going to get a chance to hear from all these guys right now, so I'm going to throw out the first question to you all, and the first question that I have for you all to answer is, uh, what is the gospel? <laughs> you, the five of you guys. Princes, again, from the west side. So... What is the gospel, and how has it shaped your black experience, your personal black experience, how you've, you've been raised? And um, so feel free to be absolutely as clear as, and succinct as possible. So whoever wants to kick it off is good. What is the gospel, and how has it shaped your personal African-American experience or black experience? When I think about the gospel... Let's see, if is, is, it, is the mic on? I'm sorry. Should be on. Yeah, yeah. When I think about the gospel, I think about God's sovereignty and His grace. Now, looking at how that has shaped my experience, um, growing up as a, a a little kid, I went to a school in, in a neighborhood that was about ninety nine point nine percent black. Um, and I don't remember any kids there that were that that were white, but yet still, um. I was made fun of for how dark I was, <laughs> right? You know, so other, other black people <laughs> was making fun of me. Um, <clears throat> and so that has sort of affected how I viewed myself. And um, as I got older, I got into, um, you know, like other organizations like the um, Nation of Islam, um, trying to find my identity. But then when I got older and grew some more, finally one day I was impacted by the gospel, right? So, um, 
And then thinking about how I was fearfully and wonderfully made and thinking about how the exact point in time that I exist and exact place that I exist is, is God's sovereign hand and moving and thinking about how I was created inside his image and his likeness. Um, I moved away from thinking about me as an individual, but instead thinking about God, hmm. right? And then looking at how God, like a master painter, would choose um, whatever color he wanted, and each one of those colors individually was beautiful as a reflection of his artistry. So that's where I stand at now, and that's how it, it has shaped me now as I can stand and, and, and walk and be proud of who I am, um, because of who created me. Oh, that's good. Um, how the gospel has impacted me. Um, so I grew up in St. Louis in the, in the suburbs. And uh, the suburb that I grew up in was predominantly black, uh, African American. And, uh, but I went to school in another area of St. Louis. So I, Grew up in what's called Kenlock, and I went to school in Florissant, which is predominantly white. And um, I just remember how I felt when I went to school. Like there was, it was the only time I felt black. Um, and um, I just remember I, I really, I really loved everybody. Like I was one of those kids. I wasn't. Um, I, I love, I was kind of nerdy, um, but I was a cool nerd. And uh, <laughs> so I got along with the, the nerds and the quote unquote geeks. Uh, I got along with the athletes because I was an athlete. I got along with the, um, um, just the in-between people. Um, but I always noticed that in St. Because St. Louis, I don't know, well Missouri as a state is one of the most segregated states in the country. And uh, it's sad to say, uh, but it, it's the truth. And um, I always wanted to hang with everybody and not just black people that went to school with me. I always wanted to hang with the white people that went to school with me also. And um, so I would try to make friends with, with white kids just like I would try to make friends with, white kid, um, with black kids. And uh, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And sometimes some of my best friends were, were white. Um, but for the most part, I had to stay around the black kids because that was more accepted. Um, I went away to college, and I, I and, and by the way, I wasn't, a, I didn't become a Christian until I graduated uh, college. I went away to college, and I was struck. I went to Kansas State University, go Cats, and uh, <laughs> it was 98% white. And I came from a city where I grew up. My neighborhood was predominantly black, but I was around white people when I went to school. But when I went to college, I was struck. I mean, I just, I remember being in the mall with some other guys from uh, the football team. Uh, and uh, I just, I remember saying to them, I feel like a sore thumb here. Like, I feel like a blueberry in a bowl of milk. Like, this is. <laughs> <laughs> Two reasons why, because I was. And the other reason was, <laughs> and the other reason was um, because I experienced a lot of things in college that were um, very, um, people really stereotype 
black people, and I had experienced it back home, but not as much as when I got away to college because I was around a lot of people that had never been around black people at all. They may have seen them on trucks, um, you know, 18-wheelers on a highway, but these are little small towns in Kansas and things like that, and they'd never seen black people except on television. And what they saw on television was horrifying. So when they saw us, they were horrified, okay? Uh, so uh, I just thought it was really strange. You know, I, I, uh, I was telling Ricardo and the guys, um, I just remember uh, going into my dorm room for, we were moving all of our furniture in, and um, some of the football players, we were on the elevator, and uh, I'm gonna get to the gospel in this moment. And we were, <laughs> we were on the elevator, I won't take too long. We were on the elevator, this really struck me. Um, it was five, five football players, all of us were black, and there was one student, and he was white, and I just remember him standing in a corner with his head down, and he wouldn't look up. And I'm, I'm one of those people that watch, I watch everybody, it's just the way my brain works. And I watched him the whole time, we were going up the different levels. And um, later on in the second semester, he wound up, I was on the study, study uh, there was a, a level that was considered the study level, the quiet floor, like that's the, store, the floor that I was on. And he happened to be down at the end of the hallway. We became best friends. And he told me verbatim, I thought you all were gangsters. I thought you all were gonna attack me. And it broke my heart. I, I already knew it, but it broke my heart to hear it from his mouth. And then it started getting around other guys. I was friends with guys on the rodeo team. If you would have saw some of us walking to class, you would have just been like, this is crazy. Guy in a sweatsuit and another guy and another guy with a hat on and his belt buckle and his boots. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> but um, they became my best friends in college. Um, I started going to FCA. I was not a Christian. I couldn't understand why I was going to FCA. But I was, every Thursday night, it was crazy. And then once I graduated, I was approached with the gospel by a guy uh, at, at a job that I worked at, Lear Corporation. And um, he spoke words to me that I, that I had been longing to hear for a long time. It was the first time the gospel was presented to me in a way uh, that he did. It was really a, um, a really easy going approach. And uh, so once I became a believer, um, I looked back on my life. I looked back and thought about how I, I wondered about God. Um, I grew up in a two-parent home. Um, my mother, I'm sorry for taking so long. Uh, my dad died at 11, uh, but we had a strong family. Um, we weren't the typical black family that you see on television or, or things that you see on television. We really did grow up with morals and all of those things. And my sister's married and has four kids. And that's, that's normal for us. Um, um, but when I graduated, I started really seeing the world and seeing how you know, I had to adjust myself when I went out in public uh, as a black man because I really felt like, like every time I left my house, I always felt black. I always knew I had to keep my yard cut. I always knew that I couldn't have any oil stains in the, in the, in the driveway, uh, make sure that nothing crazy was going on around my house, like everything was perfect because I didn't want other people to stereotype us as black people um, uh, because of what they've heard or seen. So, so I'm seeing some things. So uh, anyway, as a believer, and I put my faith and trust in Christ alone for eternal life, I look back on my life and I saw how God's hand was on me and working through different situations. And the whole time he was saying to me, 
uh, that I love everybody. And I know that, that sounds cliche, but it's the truth. He says, I love everybody and I made everybody different for a purpose. And we all, and, and everyone can bring something to the table that somebody else doesn't have. Not, not just as ethnicity, but as individuals. Mm -hmm. And that's how the gospel has affected my life. Uh, Christ accepting me as I was, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and other people as they are. And knowing that we're all in the same situation if we don't know Jesus. And we're all in the same situation if we do know Jesus. And there are some walls that are torn down um, um, between race, uh, well, not race, ethnicity, um, culture, different, different things like that. And, and the gospel really um, uh, opened my eyes up to more of what God's plan was and what he was doing. Uh, I'm sorry for taking so long, but uh, no, that's, that's just kind of how it is. Well, that's real good. Let's hear from somebody over here who has hair. So I'm Nigerian, so growing up, um, my parents taught us if you even called us black, black Americans, black African, like that would be an, an insult uh, to us because um, as Nigerians, my, uh, we feel like we're, we're better than you guys. We're better than, uh, <laughs> we're better, we're better than, um, than, than black people. So um, our parents always instilled in us since we were little, um, you're gonna go to school. You're gonna you're gonna go to school to be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. You always get good grades. And um, I remember something my dad always told me was that uh, a black man has no justice in this world. So hearing that as a little kid, I'm, I I realized that I can't mess up because I'm getting I'm gonna get in trouble no matter what. It's always gonna be my fault. And um and my parents were Catholic growing up, so um they always instilled the law. So I feared the law. Um, from uh, from the start, so I never wanted to to do anything wrong um, or or anything like that. So um, so what the gospel means to me is uh, is is freedom, just freedom, freedom from the law and freedom that um, I, I can be who who God created me to be in in Christ Jesus. Hmm. Good. Um. Yeah, I just want to thank Ricardo real quick for just giving me this opportunity. Um, you know, I don't usually get asked to do anything, so this is <laughs> <laughs> this is this is awesome. I think I am I'm definitely having one of those cloud nine experiences right now, so with, with these guys. Um, basically, when I look when I look at the gospel and just how it's affected me, um, I kind of have to use an illustration of a Venn diagram where you have the gospel in the middle in the circle. You have all these other races and nations and ethnicities around it. And the gospel builds these bridges that everlasting bridges that connect. You know, outside of that, you have sports, you have business deals that uh, connect races and ethnicities, but it's only temporary or just, you know, just for your own personal gain or to make that quick buck. But um, other than that, you know, when you when you place the gospel in it, it's, it's everlasting. You know, we are all, we started out as all being created in, in the image of Christ and, um, you know, sin entered the world and views and things got screwed up, but he's going to redeem that and those bridges, those everlasting bridges that he's built between all of us are going to stay around. I mean, we're going to be dealing with each other forever. And so 
when I see, you know, worshiping with, with you guys, you know, even if the majority of the church is white, you know, the lights dim, Blakeman's up here jamming, and we're all just singing. You know, I don't, race doesn't even come into the picture. You know, for anyone, I'm not sitting there saying, oh, man, I'm, what am I doing worshiping with all these white people or anything <laughs> like that? You know, that, that doesn't, you know, that's not, that doesn't bother me. And as you guys will hear, you know, later on, and just with my experience, um, being able to worship with, you know, blacks and whites, it's, they, there's differences, but it's all the same. In the end, it's always the same. And uh, that's the beautiful, the beautiful picture of the gospel and what we have. That's good. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone has said a lot of what I would say, but when I think of the gospel primarily, I think about uh, the, redemption, the redemptive work um, and the restorative work of Jesus Christ and um, Christ saving me to partner with him in that. And when I think of that in view of uh, ethnicity, I think of him allowing me, gifting me to go into places uh, to see his kingdom come that not everybody else can go. And not just that that's my story, but that all of us have stories like that where God saves us to uh, partner, come alongside him in saving the world. That's good. That's good. If you guys want to go ahead and just put up uh, the number so that people can text in some questions, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going because I got a ton of questions here, and I want to be able to get through them. And so I got some questions specifically for some of you guys. And so, Eugene, you have the mic. I'm going to kick it back to you. Um, Eugene, guys, is one of my best friends, one of my, my dearest friends, and, uh, and you never want to get into an email uh, back and forth argument with him because he's a journalist, and he, he will destroy you <laughs> with words. So, but Eugene, knowing your story, um, I would love to hear you talk about w what it's like um, being in, in a white institution, especially like journalism. And so if you can kind of give us just a clear uh, picture of growing up in D.C., not seeing where most of us saw growing up. Uh, we, I joke about the Cosbys and going there. I didn't know the Cosbys. You knew sure. many Cosbys sure. and people like that. And so if you can explain what, what it was like for you and even why you went into journal journalism. Yeah, um, I don't know how much you all know about Washington, D.C. When I speak with people in Arizona, what you primarily hear is they remember in the 90s that D.C. was the murder capital of the country and the crack capital of the country and that our mayor was smoking crack before Toronto's mayor. And, um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that historically Washington, D.C. has been a mecca for the black middle class. Um, and I what Ricardo was talking about, I'm a journalist and I pretty much decided to be a journalist um, in my earliest years of elementary school before 10 um, because we, we got the newspaper and we watched the news and I remember looking at the news and only seeing rappers and criminals and athletes and not being angry at all but just being like a naive child thinking, oh wow, they must not know the people that I know, my, my parents went to school and went to grad school, their parents went to grad school, black people in the 1940s, and, and so did all of their, their people, and that's not, and the, all of their associates, and that's not to say that I did not know drug dealers and that I did not know criminals as well. I just knew, I was just exposed with a comprehensive view of blackness at a very early age. Um, and whatever insecurities I had as a child, they were never because 
Um, I was black. I never thought I couldn't do something because I was black. My doctor was black. My dentist was black. Our, my parents' divorce lawyer was black. Um, <laughs> like everybody was black. And um, it's interesting. I was reading about uh, the D.C. mayoral election right now, um, and it's a it's a kind of a big deal because D.C. may elect for the first time in history a white mayor. Like the mayor of D.C. has always been black, um, and so. Um, that's what made, I went into journalism because I, um, I didn't see the diversity of blackness um, reflected in journalism in the media. And um, God has allowed me to expand that to not just, I mean, I'm not like, I'm, I'm the black reporter, but I'm not the black reporter. Um, <laughs> but it has allowed me, it's, God has given me a platform to, I see diversity on a really broad level in terms of like gender and faith. And, and race, um, it's gifted me that way to the extent that I see it more than, than many. And I, I strive to reflect, I write about Phoenix, I strive to um, have, have diverse voices from our community in the media. I will say lastly, like I, I had the privilege of uh, including Warren Stewart Jr. who just blessed us um, in an article um, because I, I, I thought he had an, a different voice. He's a graphic designer, he's a pastor, he's a father. Um, he's, it's, he's not, and, and he's young, and people don't see voices like that often in the media, and so I decided I would do that like at five. Yeah. So some of you guys may have not seen the movie The Butler. Um, if you haven't seen it, you can get it for a buck at Redbox. There's my plug. <laughs> the interesting thing when you watch The Butler is you see both grassroots and institution. And so the butler himself is working for just uh, a succession of presidents. He's the butler to the president. Meanwhile, his son is at home being raised up in the moments of the Freedom Riders and when everything black was really coming to the scene. Um, and what was interesting as you watched that is you saw one person kind of see the, the transformation of culture from the position of, a, of a, a privilege, even though he was a butler, but he was seeing it in the, in the lens of the White House. And then you had his son, who's marching with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his Freedom Riders, and then he goes over it, and he's around um, Malcolm X, and you see kind of this grassroots of both really trying to experience and see how does the African-American person have dignity. And so Eugene, being in an institution, can see it from one level, and I, I would love to hear from, from you, Wayne, primarily talking about your experience being raised uh, and being a part of, not raised in, but the nation of Islam, because a lot of our, our people may know Muslim, and we, we understand that there's black Muslims, there's brown Muslims, um, but mainly Ethiopian Africa. We're not as familiar with, um, the majority of our audience is not as familiar with Nation of Islam, Malcolm X. And so explain to me your experience being in there and, um, and things you learned, things that you th saw that were good for black dignity, and things that you saw that, um, primarily what was good. We could talk about what was bad, but what was good. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so I got Im involved in Islam when I was probably like 12 because I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. I, my mother wasn't taking me to church or anything like that. Um, so, and I, and I lived in, inside one of those red line communities, I would say, because it was, it was just nothing but poverty where I was at. And for the most part, there, there wasn't really um, any presence of people that would engage anyone that sort of looked threatening. Now, for me, the only thing that I did see, or the 
people that I did see were those people that were on the Nation of Islam inside the area where I lived at that didn't mind um, engaging us. And when I and so when I got scooped up and and I was in it for a very long time. And even now, um, giving my life to Christ and, and and going hard for him, there are elements of it that um that I felt was 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 good. The fact that um there was there was a presence. Now where I was at, there wasn't there wasn't like there was churches all over the place, but they had no presence. They they was like expecting me to show up inside the building, and um and I wasn't about to show up inside the building, um but there were people that 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 seen me and wanted to talk to me and say, hey brother, you can be more than what you're being. There's something more inside of you, and those were on the people that was in the nation of Islam. Now, they was more militant than um, the Muslims, right? Yeah. Um, much more. And I started out um, as a Muslim, but then went into the nation of Islam. And it seemed like they, they was engaging the social issues that everyone was being quiet on. And that's the thing that grabbed me the most because there were things that was going on and being an outsider, I, I didn't hear any other voices at that time and moment um, that was engaging those things, that was engaging us where we was at. And then a lot of the people that was in the Nation of Islam, like I didn't have a father in my household. It was just my mother, and then my mother was illiterate. So um, the, the family that sort of like um, took me in, they was, they was Muslims, and the father, I seen him there. I seen him fathering his family. I seen him being there for his kids. As we got more into it, and I seen more people that was in the Nation of Islam, I seen more men, and, and I was looking for that. I was looking for some form of, of manliness, some form of sense of being and who I was and what I should look like. And since there was no other voice that was reaching out, that's what the voices that I, I gravitated towards. Mm. So that's one thing that, that I think even now, that just the sense of a presence being there, knowing that I can go to that group of people, like if a church is, is, is seeking to change the culture and the environment of a neighborhood that's it in, it has to have a presence. It can't just be stuck inside the four walls of the church. The people need to know what you offer, what you're about. And, and that's how I got sucked in. And I fell in love with it because they was there. And they, they filled in uh, the gaps, even though they filled in with a lot of wrong things, <laughs> the gaps was being filled for me. So that's, that's some of the stuff I take away from it. That's good. That's really good. Let's, uh, let's answer maybe a question from, from here, and, and I'll get back to some of the questions I have if you guys have some questions that are up there. Um, okay, so what are, the best <laughs> what are the best resources to learn more about the African-American experience? I'm not laughing at the question. I'm, I'm a, I, I am laughing at the question. That was a lie. <laughs> uh, you guys can answer that. <laughs> let's, maybe, maybe one or two of you guys can answer Answer. And you can't say Ebony Magazine or <laughs> Essence or something like that. No. <laughs> um, I would just say 
being friends with other races. <laughs> I, I, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is not to um, this is not to make uh, the questioner feel poorly, but we we've communicated that there is no black experience, and so the reality is you're going to get like different experiences depending on who you talk to. Um, but I mean, there are media publications that I respect more than others, um, but I, I really value The Root. Um, it's a publication by Was the Washington Post. Um, and there are some uh, other um, public, I mean, like Wikipedia is actually pretty strong. I mean, there, there, there are quite a few authors and people. I mean, we can send you a long list. As a journalist, yeah, you would say that, that's. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, there, there, there's some, there, like Wikipedia is like, a, accuracy rate is more than 90%. Like a, really? a lot of people don't know that. Um, if there's a question mark by it, you should have a question mark. But if there's a source, uh, yeah. So. That's good. If you want to look for something to read, uh, the best thing that I do, I read this every single Black History Month. In fact, Jim always does this. If you read a book, he'll give you tacos. He owes tacos to like half of you guys. I'm not going to promise you tacos. But there's a book called uh, Free at Last with a question mark. It's by a man by the name of Carl Ellis. Um, and it's the gospel and the African-American experience, and no one has shaped my understanding of the gospel and the African-American experience as well as Carl Ellis. Um, he's amazing. He's really is amazing, older, older black man, and, um, and the guy's great because he can't say more than three words without laughing, and then he just starts talking, and he starts laughing. It's amazing, but if you read that book, email me, and we will get together and, and talk about it. I read it every Black History Month, and so currently reading it right now, so... I would say Carl Ellis. I know Carl personally. Uh, he's part of the PCA, or was, and uh, he uh, goes way back. I mean, the back black experience in America, um, the black church in America. Uh, I mean, he has so many different books and articles. Um, so please read up yeah. on him uh, if you really want to kind of get a feel of uh, a guy who's really educated but has gone deep and understands uh, different facets. It's not just from one tunnel vision. I mean, he's coming from different angles uh, when you're reading some of his writings. So That's good. Let's we'll do another question here, then I'm going to kick back some questions that I have. Um, if the media has an, inaccurate port port has an inaccurate portrayal of the black community, how, to, uh, how do I keep that from shaping how I think and perceive others? Um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you're the media. Um, so I'm assuming, I'm, I'm just going to assume that the person who asked that is a Bible-believing Christian. Um, so do you see an accurate uh, portrayal of your faith in the media? Um, I, to me, it's, all, it's on some, I mean, I, I really don't want to be like condescending, but you, you just can't believe everything you read um, about anything, about anything. And I think you... Um, it's, it just starts there. You read it and you hold it loosely. It may be true, it may not be true. But I, I, my personal experience with, with believers, they seem to do a decent job of being able to not take everything that they see in the mainstream media is true because the mainstream media doesn't do a good job of portraying uh, people of faith. So it would be the same thing regarding people of color. Just try to sh um, shorten it. Um, from a theological standpoint, is you have to be willing to hurt and willing to have pain. We, we've we've uh, used that quote from C.S. Lewis where he essentially says, if you want to avoid um, essentially having your heart broken, then don't love anything. Just take your heart, 
um, wrap it up in a casket, and then let it just grow there. The only thing about that is your heart becomes hard and hard and hard. It becomes impenetrable, and eventually it, does, it can't be redeemed. And the only place for a heart like that to live in is hell. And so the only other option is to love people and to love things and be ready and be okay with understanding in a broken world that you're going to be hurt. So therefore, when you approach the other, you approach at the starting point where the Bible starts, and that is created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. There is something in inherently beautiful and good and right about every individual. Sin has wrecked it, but it hasn't obliterated it. There are some people that do some very gross things, but they, they too are still creating the image of God. And so you hold out the offer of grace from the very beginning, but at the same time, because we live in a broken world, you have a sense of caution. And, and that's the same way that you would approach anybody, no matter what their color of their skin is or what their nationality is or what their profession or vocation is, but you have that balance of both. Um, I understand you're creating the image of God, but I do understand sin, but I'm going to start at the position of extending grace to get to know you. I may learn something, and you may hurt me. Um, and that's just the reality of life. But if we're going to love... Um, many of us in this room are Bible-believing Christians, and then we're called to do that, and we have the greatest example in Christ Jesus, who came into a world knowing the, the sin of man and the, and the purpose of man, and he, and he extended himself in grace and love, um, even to the point of death. And that's the ethic that we have, and so when it comes towards any, any other people. So let me kick it back to you guys. Um, Prince, um, I would love for you to speak about going from Apollo High School uh, in, in Glendale, highly Latino community, and then moving to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, um, very diverse city, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> to play football. And, um, and I got a second question to that, but what was just your experience culturally going from Glendale to Lincoln? Well, in Glendale, everything was, was pretty much um, diverse. Uh, I got along and was friends with every different type of race. And then when I went to Nebraska for college, it was the same culture shock uh, that, that you got. It was 98, 99% white. But um, I feel like since I watched a lot of uh, Laguna Beach, Gossip Girl, uh, <laughs> One Tree Hill, I was... You just did the was, opposite <laughs> of what I've been saying. They, <laughs> you get <Man>. different. <laughs> My story isn't done, though. I'm <laughs> but... Um... <laughs> um I was saying, I'm, I'm saying is that I was able to, to have just conversations. I was able to be relatable to, um, to, white, to, some, to, to white people and white, white women. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, but, um, but Nebraska, I wasn't, at Nebraska, I wasn't worried about being liked or disliked. I always had this personality that um, I, I was pretty much um, funny, engaging, always liked to be a center of attention. So I didn't really, um, I wasn't worried about anyone liking me. Plus, being an athlete in Nebraska, I mean, all they have is football. So I was, I was, uh, I was already liked even before I went there. As soon as I committed, and it was, it was on the web, it was on the, um, it was in the newspapers. I was already, I was already liked, un unless until I, if I would have done something wrong, then of course I wouldn't have been liked. But um, I was, I was already liked. So I wasn't really wor uh, worried about anyone um, looking at me wrong and. Um, and that's how it's been. I mean, even till now, because I'm automatically accepted because I'm a quote-unquote um, public figure. So since I play for since I play for the Giants, um, no one's expecting uh, 
no no one's I don't I don't feel like I'm being stereotyped if someone knows that. Now if I if I stand um next to somebody in the elevator or whatever, like with the hoodie on, then I'm I'm gonna think, okay, they're gonna do harm to me. But if they know that um that I play for a professional football team, um I feel like I don't uh, I don't really worry about that. So the second part of that is in your experience in a very I mean NFL, uh the NFL has a lot of African Americans and other ethnicities as well. The question that I have for you is, do you feel like there is any inequality um, and or injustice when it comes to wages, when it comes to uh, minorities that are coaches and or owners in the organization? So not the check that you receive, but those who actually write the check, right? Do you see any inequality there? And And if so, what is, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I, I would say like, well, there's no, I don't think there is a black owner uh, in, in the NFL. And, um, and for coaches, there's a, there's a rule called the, the Rooney Rule. And um, each team has to at least interview one, one, black, uh, one black coach. And um, interview, not hire, not hire, just interview. So my one of my coaches, he gets interviewed all the time, but never, <laughs> never, never gets hired. And um, and I would say uh, the 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 pay scale, um, I would say, well, at, at the quarterback position, I mean, if you guys know football, the a couple of the uh, pretty great uh, black quarterbacks. I mean, right now is like RG3, Cam Newton, um, Russell Wilson from Seahawks, if you want to say he's he's more mulatto like. And um, but um, <laughs> well, he's not black because he's he, half. He is black, right? He's half. I know, but he's yeah, he's half black. He's black. He's half black. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but um, I I wouldn't say. I mean, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say that the pay scale is different. I mean, Michael Vick. I mean, he he got a hundred million dollar contract, like um, like any other any other white uh, quarterback. So I wouldn't say the, um, the, the pay scale is, is different. Okay, because I have to because I'm a sports student. Speak to this. Why is it that when there is a black quarterback, um, he's never called athletic if he can run? But if there's a white quarterback, True. Steve Young, he's athletic. I'm sure you know the answer to this, but it's because black people are expected to run, to run fast. So <laughs> if, you're, if you don't run fast, then you're, you're unathletic. Uh, if you're if you're black, but um, and and I think and I think that's what it was uh, about black quarterbacks. Like they're gonna, like they're they're expected to run and they're and um, they're gonna run. So you like you see RG three and and Cam Newton. But now I feel like those guys are trying to stay in the pocket more and become like a a, a Payne Manning or a Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady to show like hey um, we can do we can do both. Good, Rico. We got about probably two more questions here. Uh, if you can explain just your experience of being comfortable in your own skin, and, and I say that knowing your background, being raised in a black family in the black church, and then your parents being saved, and then you going to a white Christian school, and having this kind of cross-cultural experience, much like DC had with school, but I would love to hear you talk about that. Um, yeah, just basically when, I mean, when I was five, when life began, um, I mean, from womb, I came out, I was five years old, as far as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I went to school and, you know, went to, went to an all-white school. My, my parents grew up in all-black communities, so they were more comfortable around black people, so we went to a black church. So from the very beginning, you know, 
I'm going to chapel at school and you know everybody's praising Jesus and they're white and I'm at I'm at church everybody's praising Jesus and they're black and you know as time goes on you know I'm you know in my own black culture you know just like Ricardo I grew up on hip hop you know I have tapes of Tupac and Snoop D-O-double-G. <laughs> uh, I, I was going over a friend's house, my friend Nathan, and we, and I, you know, had my tapes. My dad was like, "Why are you bringing those?" And it's like, "We're gonna listen to some rap while I'm over there." And my dad was like, "They, they probably don't listen to rap." And I was like, "Okay." So I went over there, and he was like, "Oh, I got this new tape. You gotta come listen to." And it was Tupac. <laughs> and so, and then his dad comes in and he's like, oh yeah. And so I'm like, well, white people listen to Tupac too. And so the more I grew up and saw both sides, a lot of friends that were black, a lot of friends that were white, everybody's doing the same thing, even though there's differences. I was just like, well, there's, I was just, I didn't have the experience where like some of these guys were, I was only around black people for so long and you know I had friends from both races and I got older and even on the bad side of it I had friends that were black that lived in the black neighborhoods I would go over there in high school and they would be you know selling drugs or whatever and then I went over to some white friends house and they were selling drugs too and it's like <laughs> I'm like what is the what is the difference I mean I know like sometimes the media would portray well black community's been doing this and that, and I was like, well, the white people do it too. <laughs> and so this whole time, and just, just, I kind of, kind of the lesson or just what I'm trying to portray through this is that um, I was just, I was just comfortable, and it's okay to be comfortable with who you are. There's always going to be stereotypes. There's always going to be, you know, racism isn't dead, but, you know, there's always going to be that. But as long as you're comfortable with who you are, um, I think you can get, you can really get past that. You know, racism comes up and it's more of just a, it's, it's like a chip or, you know, a, a tool to use to degrade somebody, but it's only temporary at, at most, at least in, you know, at least in my experience. But um, it, I just, that's pretty much how uh, I grew up. So. Um, okay, it is 8.02 and we do have to get our children and so I want to take one more question from back here um, and then try to race through it. Uh, lots of the American portrayals of Jesus show him, ooh, yes, yeah. as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, blue-sash-wearing white man, yeah. right? Uh, did that ever strike you as odd or misleading? Here's the deal. I didn't grow up with that. Personally, we grew up with the black Jesus. <laughs> no joke. If you go to my, my wife was shocked. I mean, just shocked. Like, <laughs> why is Jesus black? And I said, why is he not? Why wouldn't he be, right? <laughs> and you guys gonna understand this too. So the pictures of the Lord's Supper, everyone looked like they were Jamaican, right? <laughs> and so that was just it. And we were told, so Black History Month at my church, I grew up in a, like I said, a black church, we as children always got up. Every week someone had to memorize a Langston Hughes poem or something like that that we would recite to the church. Um, in, bad, in a bad theological way, this was really bad, but it was shaped us, is that I remember our pastor would get up and talk about from Revelation when John would describe Jesus, his hair being like wool, and he would say, and he saw this resurrected Jesus, and his hair was like wool. Who y'all know got hair like wool? <laughs> you can't tell me our Savior's not black. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> so Jesus has always been black. 
Yeah, I, w I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, gr <laughs> growing up in D.C., I don't know any black people who went to a black church with a picture of a white Jesus. <laughs> and, and the reality is we, when we look at scripture, we know that Jesus was from a part of the country that made him look more Middle Eastern than anything else. And that's, that's one of the really sad things about the, the state of race in America. Mm. Um, and, and being presented such a false extreme, a lot of times black people have gone to the other extreme. So we know that uh, Jesus was not from Nigeria, despite what your parents probably think. But the, the, the fact is, we, we know, though, that he was a person of color. And I mean, I think that's one of the really sad things that, that um, you talked a bit about being comfortable in your own skin. When, you're, when you grow up in a world that hates you, and I mean, that, that may sound like extreme to some of you all, but the message that black people get in America is that we, we are hated. Your skin is in, inappropriate and unacceptable. Your lips are, your, the way you speak, the way you think, the way you dress, the way you feel, the way you sing, the way you move. It's wrong, it's bad, it's unacceptable, it's sinful. Um, that's, that's what we fight against often. And so in, in, term, in, in trying to push back against that, you push back too far a lot of times. That's good. But um, I, I liked growing up with black Jesus in church. Yeah, so, so here's what I'm gonna do. You guys, these guys, will you guys give them a hand? Um, feel free to grab these guys and talk to these guys, get their number. These guys are good at talking about, uh, about this and, and just sit down and, and talk over, over, over something cold or something warm, whatever you want. Uh, that'd be really good. Let me pray for us and then go get your children um, and then hang around and talk and it'd be a lot of fun. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus. In him we have the best identity. It's neither black nor white, Jew nor Gentile, male or female, but in Christ, Lord, you have creating something completely new. And in that, we don't lose our blackness, we don't lose our whiteness, but in itself, Lord, it is enhanced. The things about our own culture and our own selves individually, Lord, are critiqued. And the things, Lord, that, that are off, you redeem, you transform. And so, Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel, Lord. We can't have this conversation without the gospel. And so we can't live without the gospel. And so we thank you for Jesus' precious blood that was shed for all who would come to him in repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you for this church, for these people, that we can have a conversation like this. I pray that it would continue for all nations and tribes and men and women. And so God, continue to lose us and use us through the gospel, Lord, to speak to those social issues that, that Wayne talked about, to be a presence in this community, in the communities that you have all of our congregations, that the church in itself would be a powerful witness of the coming kingdom of Christ. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.